When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Episode 16, The Broke Millennial. Welcome to Chain of Wealth. Here's your host, Dennis, inspiring you to begin your journey of financial freedom. Hey, Chainers, and welcome to another edition of Chain of Wealth. Today, we have Erin Lowry with us. She is an outstanding writer and is the author of Broke Millennial, Stop Scraping By and Get Your Financial Life Together. She has countless blogs on her website that help the 20 to 30-somethings learn, plan for their financial future. Erin leads by example, telling you in detail all of her tips. Welcome, Erin. Thanks so much for having me. We're excited to have you on the show. So tell us a little bit about your personal life. Oh boy, where do we want to dig in there? Uh, so my name is Aaron Lowry. As you mentioned, I live in New York City. I've been here for a bit over six years now, and I live with my partner, whom I affectionately refer to as Peach on the site and in the book. And we have a spunky little rescue dog named Mosby. Oh, cute. Aaron, I loved your blogs. I read them for hours the other day. Can you? Oh, thank you. You're welcome. Can you tell the chainers a little bit about that donut selling yard sale lesson you learned? <laughs> sure. So I refer to that as my origin story. And it's like some, some sort of personal finance nerd superhero. And what it all started for me in terms of coming to understand money back in a hot summer's day in North Carolina in 1996. And I was seven years old at the time. And my parents were not very big on handing us money. And when I say us, I'm referring to myself and my little sister. And instead, we had to figure out how to work for it. But unfortunately, when you're seven, your earning opportunities are quite limited. So I had an idea when my mom was hosting a yard sale that I could sell Krispy Kreme donuts to the people coming to this yard sale. And what we did is I went up to my dad and I asked if he would stake me because I didn't have the upfront capital to go buy the donuts. And I also needed him to drive and actually go get them because I was seven. He agreed, ended up selling out all of the donuts. I had my little sister help me for a little bit. And at the end of this, I'm thinking that I'm flushed with cash and I'm going to go get two super soakers from Toys R Us and it's going to be a great summer. And instead, my dad walks over and explains that because my little sister worked for me for a little bit, I owed her $2 of the $20 that I had earned. And since you know, he went and actually picked up the donuts and paid for the donuts. I owed him back the $8 that it cost him to get those donuts. So my net profit was $10. And then he actually took the money from me. <laughs> I feel like that was traumatic as a child. <laughs> it was one of those traumatic yet, you know, inciting events that like led me off into this future of figuring out how money works. So it was good and bad. And I really should have seen it coming because as a very small child, 
starting, I mean, I'm sure it started from before I was aware of my surroundings, but starting from the time I could have memory of it, every Halloween, my dad would also impose a candy tax on all of the candy that we brought in from Halloween. And his rationale was that he and my mom took us out trick-or-treating, so we wouldn't have gotten this haul without him. Therefore, we owed him a tax, which you know set me up nicely for when I like went into the actual working world and <laughs> learned about having to pay taxes to the government. But he's like, hey, we provided this service to you, so you have to give us a little kickback. And he took those like primo pieces. We're talking Skittles, Snickers, Milky Ways. So that was also a bit of a traumatic experience. It sounds like you got off quite lots. Why didn't he charge you rent as well? <laughs> hey, I have a whole section of my book about parents should charge their kids rent. <laughs> so that can give you some insight too. <laughs> awesome. So what's your $5 saving strategy? It is this really silly thing that I started trying about four months ago. I came across it on a blog that sadly I forgot which one it was, so I can't credit the author. I did not come up with this myself, but he was starting this thing where every time he paid for something in cash and got a $5 bill back with his change, he put that $5 bill away into a jar, candy tin or whatever you want to say to him. I was like, oh, that's kind of quirky. I'll give it a go. And living in New York City, I still use a lot of cash. And just for a variety of personal reasons, I like using cash. I still have credit cards, use credit cards. But a lot of times if I'm just buying, you know, a latte or whatever it is, I will use cash. And so I started to institute this policy in my day-to-day -day life. And I have actually saved over $300 in about four months using this just saving $5 strategy. Wow. I was actually talking to my mom right before I read your blog about it. And she told me that she was saving for her European trip only with $5 bills. That's awesome. Yeah. So that's actually partly what I'm doing at this point. When I started it, I didn't really have a plan for it other than just see what would happen. And I didn't think it would gain that much money that quickly, to be totally honest. But then you realize when you start paying for things with a $20 bill, how often you get a lot of fives back, which is a little painful every so often. <laughs> but um, my partner and I got engaged a few months ago. So I was like, hey, I'm actually just going to start putting this aside as a honeymoon savings fund in addition to what we're already saving, just to have that little extra on top. And at this point, I feel like I could easily save probably $1,000 by the time we go on a honeymoon just with this very passive strategy. That'll definitely help. Definitely. Can you explain what a credit freeze is and what it's used for? Sure. So for those who noticed in the news that Equifax experienced a data breach uh, about a month back, maybe six weeks at this point, that it was announced. The breach happened actually quite a bit long ago. But uh, what you can do is put what's called a credit freeze on your credit reports. And this is something that anyone has the opportunity to do. You can do it at all three of the credit reporting bureaus, which is Experian, Equifax, and TransUnion. And what it does is it essentially locks it down so that lenders cannot get access to your credit report unless you quote unquote thaw it. And the way you can thaw it is by having the special PIN number that the credit bureau gives to you when you freeze your report. And the reason that it makes sense for people to do this is that if your information was compromised in the breach, this is a way of locking it down so that if somebody has your social security, your driver's license number, your address, your name, your birth date, all of that information that they need for identity theft, 
it makes it a lot harder for them to do things like open up, you know, an auto loan in your name, a credit card in your name, a personal loan in your name, all these things, these nefarious things that people might be doing with that information. It's much harder for them to do it if there's a freeze on your report because a lender say that, you know, Jim Smith was off with my name, trying to open up an account in my name and the lender puts in all this information and it pops up credit freeze, Jim Smith would have to be able to provide the pin to thaw the credit report in order for the lender to proceed. And Jim Smith obviously wouldn't have access to that pin. So it's a way that you can protect yourself from identity theft. That's definitely a huge value add. And we'll definitely be telling our listeners about that a bit more. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. A few weeks ago, I was actually out to brunch with one of my friends. And when I went to pay for my bill, they came back and they told me that my card had been declined and there was no reason for it to have happened. And later when I talked to the bank, they said that my card information had been stolen and I had to go through all the trouble of going to the bank and getting a new card and then having the new card mailed to me. And it was such a pain. And then on top of it, the guy in the fraud department was like, you might want to check your credit report now too. Oh, okay. Yeah, identity theft is such a headache. I've only dealt with it in a similar situation with credit cards, fortunately, thus far. And I've had four credit cards and a debit card get compromised over the years. So it's happened quite a few times. And one of the ways in which I try to be proactive is that I have alerts set up on all of my credit cards. So as soon as there's a transaction made, I get a text message that a transaction has happened. So if something is being charged that's not me, I am alerted instantly. And I will say a lot of credit card companies do have pretty great algorithms for catching fraud. Typically, if two or three transactions happen that seem very out of the ordinary for you, you should be getting a call from your credit card company and they should be confirming whether or not that is indeed you. Fantastic. So do you still do your weekly 15-minute money meetings? And can you explain to our listeners what exactly that is? Yes, I do. And yes, I can. It's a very simple financial meeting that I have with myself every single Sunday. And after I get married, my partner and I will be doing them together. And what I do is I sit down, usually with pen and paper, because even though I am a 28-year-old millennial, I still like to kick it old school every once in a while with pen and paper. And I go and check in on all of my credit cards, write down the balances, and then I check in on my bank accounts. First, it also is a great way to find fraud if that's potentially happening without you knowing. But the other thing that it's great to do is it makes sure that you're never going to be surprised by a credit card bill at the end of the month. So one way that I also kind of double down on making sure that I'm never surprised is I will on occasion pay off credit cards throughout the month so that what is actually in my checking account reflects what I do indeed have left to spend. Because a lot of times, let's say you have you know, $800 sitting in your checking account and you're thinking to yourself, that's what I have to spend in this month. And you're forgetting about the fact that you've already charged $600 on a credit card. So you really only have $200 of wiggle room left to spend. And I think a lot of people get themselves into trouble because they forget to do that due diligence. And so that credit card bill comes in at the end of the month and they're like, oh, right, I forgot I spent that much money. So it's the 15 minutes, it's really all it takes to check in on all your accounts, make sure that you're completely up to date and you're not forgetting about anything. What a good idea. And talking about your money meetings and everything, 
Can you tell us some of your tips to staying on a budget? One, the biggest one is you have to find a style that works for you. Everybody hates the word budgeting. I hate the word budgeting. I actually rebranded it to cash flow because I think it sounds sexier. <laughs> and that's the most important step. Step one is knowing your cash flow, how much money is coming in and how much money is going out every single month and including in that going out what you're putting into savings because the difference is what you really do have left to spend in the month. And if the difference is a negative number, then it's a really critical situation. You have to figure out either how to trim your budget down or be earning more or both at the same time. And so first it's knowing your cash flow. Now the other thing is to recognize that just because a budgeting style works for you know your mom, your dad, your sister, your best friend, your partner, whomever, doesn't mean it's necessarily going to work for you. And sometimes you have to try on a few different styles before you find the one that actually does fit and work best for you. I've gone through a few different iterations. The other thing is you're going to grow and evolve. So what worked for you at 21, 22, maybe while you were paying down debt, maybe while you had other aggressive financial plans, might not be necessarily what makes the most sense when your life shifts around the time you're 28 to 30. So when I first moved to New York City, I religiously used the envelope system for budgeting. And part of that idea is that you have a bunch of different em envelopes and each one has something that you need to pay for, whether it's rent, food, you know, you could even have a fun fund, savings, all of those different envelopes. And you put money in that you're allocating to those budgets. And when the money in the envelope is gone, it's gone. You have no more to spend in there. And early on when I lived in New York, I was working a lot of jobs that paid in cash or that I got tips from. So it was really easy for me to actually do the envelope systems with cash. I also would not ever advocate for someone to have hundreds of dollars in their New York City apartment in cash, because if you get <laughs> robbed, there's no FDIC insurance on your apartment. So just one thing to consider. Definitely makes and, sense. Yeah, and that worked really well for me at the time. But as I evolved and I didn't have jobs that paid in cash so much anymore, and I just had other savings plans and other needs, I started to migrate into different budgeting styles. The one that I use today, I affectionately refer to as the no budget budget. And what I mean by that is I run my cash flow. I save a lot aggressively upfront anytime I work on a variable income because I'm a freelancer. So anytime a paycheck comes in, 50% of it gets saved. 40% of it goes into an account for quote unquote, uncle Sam put it aside to pay my taxes. And then I oversave there because then I always have money to also put into my retirement accounts. And then I always make sure I'm saving at least 10 more percent. So 50% total per paycheck goes into other savings pots that I might be working towards. Awesome. You always have to remember to pay yourself first. <laughs> Absolutely. And so that's a big part of the strategy that I use now. So I'm paying myself first. I'm also making sure to kind of allocate for my bills, especially to the IRS. And then my next strategy is just to always be mapping out how much I need baseline just to survive. And then any surplus, I can figure out how I want to spend that in the month. But I usually just have an amount in my checking account. Bills are paid, savings are done. And so those remainders are just what I have to spend. And I don't stress about where I spend it. I don't allocate it to certain buckets, but I have to know that when it's gone, it's gone. So if I go hard at the top of the month, it's going to be rice and beans for me in the last week of the month. <laughs> Hopefully that doesn't happen too often. <laughs> I 
try to balance it out, but you know, sometimes your month gets front loaded with events and at the end of the month, like whatever's in the pantry, pull it out. We've got to yeah. be creative here. <laughs> <laughs> Makes sense. So what would you say is the secret to getting great credits and then being able to maintain it? Credit's actually shockingly easy to handle once you understand how it works. And there are five main factors that go into your credit score, but there's really only two with which you need to drastically concern yourself. And that's your utilization, which is a fancy word for the amount of available credit that you're using, and then your payment history. Your payment history makes up 35% of your total credit score. So if you miss a payment one time, it can be a crushing blow. So a big part of this is always paying on time. You know, sometimes we have that mantra that it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. That's never the case with paying your bills to any sort of agency that reports to a credit bureau. You want to be paying those on time. And if you're going to be running into a problem, you want to proactively call and talk to them about it and see if you can get an extra couple of days. So on-time payments is critical. And that's the first big factor. And then the utilization one pertains to your credit cards. So let's say that you have a $1,000 credit limit and you spend $200 in a month, the bill comes in, you pay it off on time and in full, you were 20% utilized because $200 of $1,000, that was 20% of your total. Now what happens is the credit bureaus want to see you using at most 30% of your total available credit. So if you go above that, you start to look a little bit more risky. So the big goal is to always keep your utilization ratio at 30% or less of your available credit. And there are a lot of tips and tricks and hacks that are a little convoluted about how to do that. But the big thing is just to make sure you're always paying on time and in full and making sure you're not running up and maxing out your credit cards. Wow, that's a lot of information. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, sure thing. Um, okay, so let's talk about the real thing, student loans. What did you do to pay your half of your student loans back? I actually never had student loans, so I was very fortunate in that regard. My parents' deal with me was they would pay for 50% of my college education. I had to figure out how to cover the other 50%. So I made the decision to go to a school that gave me scholarship money. And then I had to work through college to keep the academic scholarship so that I could actually come out debt-free. Awesome. So all of those uh, candy taxes went to somewhere. <laughs> it did. My parents definitely set me up well. Now my partner has student loan debt. So once we get married, that's going to be something he and I have to work through. Um, I've already really been pretty involved with that up until this point. I don't help him pay it, but I've been very involved with making sure he's in the right plans and looking into refinancing and all the different options. So while I didn't personally have to deal with them prior to, I definitely know a lot about them from working in the space. And then we'll be inheriting them through marriage, if you will. Great stuff. So let's talk a little bit about your book, Broke Millennial. Stop scraping by and get your financial life together. What was your inspiration in writing the book? The book was really a dream that I always had. Even as a, a young child, I always wanted to be a writer. If you had told 10-year-old Erin it would be a money book, she would have laughed in your face. But I knew I wanted to write. And the blog itself, when I first started writing on my website, was very storytelling in nature. And the book is all original material. There are some stories that overlap a little bit, but I've refreshed how I told them or you know, I was able to extend them and they went into full chapters. But the whole point of the book was just to help other people figure out how to get control of their money. 
because there really are two options in life. Either you control your money or your money controls you. It's going to happen one way or the other. And I wanted to make sure that every millennial, no matter how dire the situation felt when they picked up the book, could figure out how to get in control of their money. And that's partially why it's structured the way it is. Every single chapter of the book stands on its own, which really enables the reader to navigate and flip through based on his or her own financial life. There might be chapters that are completely relevant to you. So if you have a 780 credit score and you've got that on lock and you don't need to learn anything about how the credit scoring system works, great, skip that entire chapter. Maybe you already know how to budget really well, but you're getting curious about how to save for retirement better or different savings strategies or how to invest or how to hire a financial planner. So even people who are further along in their financial lives can get some value out of it. And I also mixed in a lot of emotional things. You know, how do you talk to your friends about money? How do you get financially naked with your partner? You know, how do you talk to your parents? And these other elements of money that are often overlooked when we're having nitty gritty conversations about the mechanics of how finances work. Do you have a favorite chapter in your book? I had the most fun probably writing the getting financially naked chapter just because I take a lot of license with metaphors and kind of alluding to other acts that people may be doing in a relationship that are not financial. And I linked the two together just to make it more entertaining for the reader. But also because to me, it's a very important conversation and a lot of people experience intense stress in their relationships because it is hard to talk to partners about money, especially because you can feel that your partner's judging you or that they just don't understand where you're coming from. You might have completely different emotional relationships to money and trying to navigate how to handle that is a really critical part of growing together as a couple. I can definitely agree with that. Do you have any other upcoming projects that you're working on? I actually just was fortunate enough to sign a two book deal with my publisher. So I will have two more books coming out in the next couple of years. The second one for sure will be about investing. And we are actually debating the topic of the third one. So anybody who has a great idea of what they'd want to read about from me for a third book, you can tweet it to at broke millennial. I love hearing from people about ideas. Awesome. So when you those come out, hit us up and we'll re-interview and find out a bit more about your book. Perfect. That'd be great. <laughs> awesome. Chainers, we're just going to take a quick break and say a very big thanks to our sponsors. And then we're going to dive right back into the value link round. Chainers, if you've ever wanted to host an Airbnb, but unsure how to do it, head over to chainofwealth.com slash Airbnb. Katie's written an awesome guide about how she hosted an Airbnb and made over $7,000. That's chainofwealth.com slash Airbnb to find out more. So Erin, why do you think that people fail to achieve their dreams? Ooh, loaded question. I think a lot of it can be that we're too scared to try. And a lot of times it's easy for us to talk ourselves out of even making that first attempt or allowing other people to tell us that we're crazy and it's not possible and just stick to what's easy and makes sense. Awesome. So do you have any other books or podcasts that you could recommend to our listeners? Oh, so many. So it depends on what you're interested in. But podcast wise, Planet Money is great. I also love everything that comes out from Gimlet Media. So it's your stuff like Reply All and The Nod. And oh my goodness, I feel like I just need to open my phone and check all of my various podcasts right now. <laughs> I'm I sure listen you to have a lot of them. <laughs> 
Um, Tim Ferriss, I like his podcast. He does a great interview. The Nerdist, This American Life, Two Dope Queens, Death, Sex, and Money, Heavyweight, The Fire Drill Podcast, Uncivil, uh, The Money Nerds Podcast. So there's a lot that I like to listen to. Freakonomics is another great one. But I really prefer stuff that is also, you know, deep dive interviews are always interesting, but anything that's narrative in form as well and tells a story, I really enjoy listening to. And in terms of books, completely depends on what I'm in the mood for. Uh, lately, I've been reading a book called Daughters of the Samurai, which is based on a true story of Japanese women in the late 1800s who were sent from Japan to America for 10 years to learn about American culture and go back to Japan, which is a really interesting read. And then in terms of finance books, there are just so many out there. It kind of depends on the style and what you're interested in. But I always talk about The Thin Green Line by Paul Sullivan because it really kind of digs into the mentalities of the wealthy and what the difference is between being rich and being wealthy and kind of what makes those guys tick. And Aaron, do you have a favorite quote that you like to live by? Well, my favorite money quote is probably misattributed to Albert Einstein because everything seems to get attributed to him or Ben Franklin. So I don't actually know who said this, but it's that compound interest is the eighth wonder of the world. He who understands it earns it. He who doesn't pays it. And I love that quote in terms of finances. That is fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) And it's like debt or investing. It's great for both sides of the coin in terms of understanding how money works. And then one that I personally like, it's not really a specific quote, it's more of a mantra, but when my mom dropped me off at college, she gave me a little bracelet that I still wear every day to this day that says, remember who you wanted to be. And I just really love that. Awesome. So do you have some advice that uh, you can give our listeners and then we'll say goodbye? My first step would always be to run your cash flow. So as soon as you're done listening to this, Figure out exactly how much money is coming in every month, exactly how much is going out and what that difference is to a point in my life where I'm completely financially independent. And also think about like your short and medium term goals as well. And don't just focus exclusively on the long term. Awesome. Chainers, check out brokemillennial.com. There's loads of great information on there. It can really help you transform your financial life and make a difference in your world. Chainers, if you enjoyed this podcast, head over to chainofwealth.com and subscribe for our newsletter. We send weekly updates about the latest episodes and tips how to get out of debt and build wealth. That's chainofwealth.com and subscribe for our newsletter. Catch you on the flip side. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.